Praise the Lord. If you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 to 19. This is Paul speaking to the Christians at Ephesus. It says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the capital S, Spirit, of wisdom and revelation. So Paul continues to repeatedly ask God that that the Father would, the glorious Father would give them the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, meaning wisdom to understand and revelation like it's not clear to you, it needs to be revealed. So that you may know him better, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would um, do as Paul asked, Lord God, that you would give us understanding and wisdom and revelation, Lord, from the Holy Spirit, that we would understand, Lord God, the things that are going on around us, Lord God, that we would grow and mature and know you better, Lord God, like Paul said. Do it today, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, and everybody says amen. Hallelujah. Title of my sermon is Shattered Dreams. Shattered Dreams. Anybody here ever had a shattered dream? Devastating, isn't it? Well, this message today is about shatterproofing your life. Shatterproofing your life. How many have ever seen anything that's shatterproof? Do you know why they make things shatterproof? Because at one time, somebody shattered it. Some of you can remember back in the 70s with fiberglass backboards and basketball, that every once in a while somebody would go up and if you grab the rim the right way and you put the right weight in the right places, the entire backboard would shatter. So now very rarely do you ever see that happen because they make shatterproof backboards now. And one of the realities of life is we're going to have shattered dreams. It's everybody. And when dreams are shattered, what do you do? And so this message is all about giving you wisdom and revelation about how to shatterproof your life and what God's trying to do when your dreams are shattered and so that you're not destroyed by dreams being shattered. How many think that dreams can destroy your life if they're shattered? Hallelujah. We, um, and I, and I always hate, um, when you're, when you're ministering, you typically minister out of your own prayer life. You know, what, what, what's happening in your life. And, and, um, and so I always hate a lot of times. In fact, I always have, uh, Ryan on the button editing too many personal things from my life or people that I know or my family. But, um, you know, my, my son, God wanted me to use this as an example for this message, but he's, he's worked for 10 years, you know, to try to win one thing, a sectional championship. And, and last night, you know, you hate to see their dreams get shattered, but you know, he worked. Like nobody's ever worked. And in the course of that, put together a great career. You know, he, you know, was 37 people in the history of Indiana basketball for a hundred years. 37 people can raise their hands and say, I scored more points than that young man did. 38th on the all time list. School's all time leading scorer. County's all time leading scorer. Um, and just accomplished many things. You know, won a conference championship, 
But the one thing that he worked for all those years was that sectional championship. And a lot of places it's easy to do, but at North Posey it's not. They they haven't won since 1966 and have only won one in a 100 years. And the one in 1966 is a 73-year-old man in Florida that called him and said, we were the underdogs too. So he goes into this tournament and you and you want the best for your kids, you know. You want them to succeed and accomplish their goals and their dreams. And and so, you you know, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. And so you know, you don't know what God wants to do. And so I always tell my kids, I told him, I said, you know what? You just put it in God's hands and whatever happens, happens, you know. And so we did the same thing for four years, freshman year. We're playing the best team in the sectional modern day. And odds are against him. You know, he's the underdog. He goes 10 for 10 from the line in the fourth quarter. Has a three-point lead with one second left. Modern day goes to shoot a three-pointer, a desperation one. And one of our seniors fouls him. He hits three free throws. It sends us to overtime. We lose in overtime. Sophomore year, we're playing Forest Park, who ended up going to the state finals that year. But we end up matching up with them in the championship. We're a major underdog. He hits a shot in the last seconds to tie the game. And with a few seconds left, they hit a desperation three to win the game and go to state eventually. Last night, we're the underdog again. We've already beaten Modern Day, the best team in the sectional. He scores 37 points. Last night, you see all the weight of the world's on him. He puts everything into it. And it goes down to the last shot in overtime. And it rolls around the rim and just barely rolls out. And how many know that's disappointment? And this disappointment is nothing compared to what disappointments you'll see in life. I mean, it's not even close. But when I was praying about it, God said, hey, you know what? And I can remember always telling my kids and telling him. I said, you know what? And there's a lot of what ifs. I mean, there's so many what ifs. We would have been the favorite in the sectional had my other son not hurt his ACL to start the season, and he's been out all year. And so we fought through that, and we fought through the next thing. And and God just doesn't, for whatever reason, want it to happen, and it's disappointment. And so I always tell them, when you have disappointment, all you do is move on to the next thing. You just say, that's the end, and you move on to the next thing. And I'll be honest with you, I've had a lifetime of disappointments. You say, man, you don't seem like it. You seem like you've had everything go pretty well for you. But I've had a lifetime of disappointment, and and I've got 30 years of maturity. And I'll be honest with you, the ground could be scorched with fire, everything burnt up, and mentally I just walk through it and say, okay, move on to the next thing. Because God has taught me. God has shatterproofed me. And I found myself last night, I had already moved on. I seen the disappointment of the ball rolling off the rim. I knew it would shatter him. But I remember in my mind, I'm like, okay, those are shattered dreams. I've learned to just move on and see what God has in store for that. And what I failed to do is remember that he's not there yet. A lot of young, immature, um, young believers, they have to go through it. And, you know, my sons are going to have to go through it. My daughters are going to have to go through it. People in this church are going to have to go through it. And we're going to have to mature to where God wants us to be, where we can be shatterproof from disappointments. And so this message is very important and God uses that kind of thing to minister to even more important disappointments and more deep disappointments. And you say, well, what kind of disappointments are that? 
there's going to be grief that's so deep and disappointments that are so deep that it's going to take everything inside of every one of us to survive. And if we do survive and we trust in the Lord, it'll deepen us and mature us so much that it'll shatterproof our lives from disappointment. And most of life, just from my experience of really studying people over the years, most of the deep problems of life are connected with the disappointments. Most of the deep depression, most of the deep anger, most of the deep bitterness against God, most of the things where you hold God accountable for something that didn't go our way are connected with disappointment. And so this message is necessary for everybody in this room. I wish somebody was immune, and I wish that God just answered every prayer exactly the way we wrote it out in our script. But he just doesn't do that, and he doesn't do it for a reason that is good for you. You say, well, how is that possible? My script was so much better. My script was so much better the way I had it all written out. This is how I wanted my marriage to go. This is how I wanted that loved one in my life's life to be. They weren't supposed to go. You know, this is how I expected things to go with my kids. How many have ever had disappointments? Hallelujah. So we've got to figure out, there's a thing um, that we see, the area that I live in has soil that would be considered what's called sandy loam. Okay, it's sandy, but it's good soil. But there's something that we have out where I live called cover crops. And cover crops mean that if you have a soil that's sandy, the nutrients leach out of the soil very easily with rain. It doesn't hold nutrients in it as well. So the way you protect the nutrients and enrich the soil, you say, why are you talking about this? It's very important. The way you enrich the soil, if you want real life and real fruitfulness in that soil, you plant what's called a cover crop. And what a cover crop is, is a living crop. It's a less significant crop than the one you want. But it's a crop that protects the soil. It's bearing fruit. It's good cover that's on top of the soil that you planted good seeds But then when you're ready to plant the real crop that you really want, the real valuable crop, you know what you do with it? You plow it under. And man, there are a lot of dreams in life that are just cover crops. God wants you to be fruitful in your life and God has bigger plans and He's planting something that's growing and you have... um, these ideas of where that crop is going to go and what it's going to do and and how it's going to be in your life, and then all of a sudden it's just all plowed under. It's barren. And you look and you say, man, look, I've got nothing here. There's nothing here. All of it's been plowed under, and what you don't realize is what I would say to my kids in disappointments are everything that you went through and that struggle is enriching your faith. So life can come out of that. A valuable crop can come out of your life. But we don't see it that way when it's plowed under. We say, man, that was a perfectly good crop, God. Why did you plow that under? Because God has something bigger. God has a bigger crop. God has a bigger fruitfulness. God has a bigger plan than you ever dreamed of, but he's got to plow that under. That's fertilizer. That's enriching the soil. That's making it more fruitful than you can ever imagine. And I came across uh, in a women's devotional. You say, my goodness, what is wrong with you? Why are you reading a women's devotional? Why am I reading a women's devotional? You know why I read a women's devotional? Because I see the wisdom they have, the discernment, all those characteristics that I don't have. And so I'm trying to figure out how they have it. So I read women's devotionals. You ought to try it. Don't look at me like that. Try it. That's my secret right there. Women's devotionals. (laughs) Eddie said, that's why I buy turkey bacon. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, well, that's okay. I'm, uh, some people are just more aware of their diet, you know. Right, right, Kevin? Amen. <laughs> but this is from a woman named Samantha Nieves. And I want you to listen to it. It really, really is a great devotional. It says, I used to think disappointment was a word for minor bummers. I'm disappointed I had to cancel my coffee date. Disappointed because I missed my flight. Disappointed in the food at our favorite restaurant on date night. But I'm discovering the disappointment is actually a lot deeper. Dis- disappointment can feel like an unwelcome inconvenience, but it can also feel like utter destruction. Gut-wrenching pain. My tears will never dry up heartache. Will it ever be okay again confusion? How many have ever been there? All those situations. I don't know how to get through this kind of despair. Disappointment comes in all shapes and sizes. It might begin small and gain strength over time. I may have had those kind. Or it might crush you suddenly like an anvil was dropped from the sky. I may have ever had that. The pain of disappointment aches with a distinct grief at the loss of what could have been. It's where we face the death of our expectation, our hope, or our dream. The word disappointment actually is the word appointment. And sometimes we have an appointment. Sometimes we've decided that I have an appointment with this kind of a future. And we've already scheduled it. We're already ready to be there. We already see it in a distance And we already know that God wants us to have it. And some reason, that appointment is canceled. How many have ever been there? How many have ever had the doubts, the fear, the anxiety, the confusion, the anger, the bitterness? And what God's trying to do today is He's trying to pull that out of you. That 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 the moments that you were angry at God, the moments where you Maybe even cursed God. I'm just being real here. You shook your fist at God and you said, God, if I were God, I would never do that. If I were God, I would never be so cruel. I would never do that kind of thing if I were God. How many have ever been there? I'm telling you, if you can get over this, the enemy's hold on you will not be very, very, very strong anymore. But if you can't get over this, the enemy will destroy you with it. He'll he'll destroy you your entire life over this if we can't get over it. And what God wants to do is reveal it and make us understand it. It says, she goes on, it says, Disappointment digs a ditch in your heart. If our expectations are pictures of how our life should look, are like a lush garden. See, this is why we read women's devotions, because if this were a men's devotion, there wouldn't be a lush garden here, right? Hallelujah. (laughs) The picture of how our life should look, if it's like a lush garden, listen to this, where flowers are beautiful and a variety grow, Disappointment is like a crude shovel that uproots the beauty of the foliage and the leaves and makes ditches in its wake. Can you imagine that? You've cared for this garden. It's a beautiful garden, beautiful flowers. You watch them grow every day. Some of you probably are like me and you, you know, I walk by my trees and I say, I'm your dad. You know that, right? I do that. You do that. Praise the Lord. But you've, <laughs> you've taken care of them. You've really watched them with a gardener's eye. And they're growing and they're beautiful. And then all of a sudden, disappointment is like a shovel that just uproots all of that. 
and you're looking at this hideous ditch where everything's been uprooted and you're angry and you're mad and you're saying life shouldn't be this way and I didn't plan for it to be this way and I don't want it to be this way and but yet there it is and um says we look at the ditches we're stunned and disgusted and the ache of the loss of the lovely flowers we groan as uh each dig of the shovel feels like it's actually piercing our heart why would we want life to look like this? Have you ever been there? Some of you are like, I've never had a flower garden, Chad. Come on, think deeper, think deeper. All right? I'm trying to turn this into a men's devotional, okay? We'll say there were Roma tomatoes there, you know, or maybe, you know, I can't do it. I can't even do it. All right, never, never mind. We tended those gardens, we cherished. Each delicate flower, we held them close, careful to ensure growth. The fruition of the garden was our hope that someday we dreamed about. And now every root is dug up from its home and its soil and it's left lifeless. Our plans, our excitement, our efforts, they're laid waste. And we're staring at the destruction, the ditches of what could have been. Amen. Disappointment, she goes on, disappointment really can... Hurt that much. In fact, disappointment has the potential to wreck our lives. If we treasured the garden of expectation so intensely, the ditches disappointment digs can overwhelm, crush, destroy if we don't search out God's perspective of it all. Think about it. Wrecking your life because of the failed expectations that we had for our life. It's in these moments, she goes on, as we stand in the ditch of disappointment that we desperately need God's perspective. And praying for God's perspective doesn't necessarily mean we'll get answers to our specific circumstances or that we'll see the long-awaited outcome to arrive. Praying for God's perspective is about believing and clinging tight to the truth about God and His promises so that we rest in His comfort when it all hurts so that we see His faithfulness at work in the midst of unwelcome situations, so that we praise Him for every little gift of grace in each day. We're filled with hope no matter the outcome. We prep the muddy soil in the ditches and ask Him to grow something new there. I'm telling you how you deal with disappointment. You know, I think our tendency is, hey, put it back. Make it like it was. You know, make it like I want it to be. Make it like I wrote it. Make it like I envisioned it. And that's not what I'm reading here. We desperately need God's perspective. Why would I need God's perspective when everything has been destroyed? Maybe God has plans to put something there. You say, it couldn't have been better. Well, I had But you know what I've learned over the years? It is better than what I had. It's so much better than what I had. It's so much more wonderful than what I envisioned. And I've got to believe and trust in those circumstances that God has a plan for my life. And if I can do that, this is where greatness happens. In fact, I was looking at some of the people in the Bible that were in this very situation. And I came up with a few names you may have heard of, if I can find them in my notes. Here they are. Jacob. Think of the promises of Abraham that he was going to make a great nation out of them. Abraham passes those promises and God is blessing the family. Isaac is blessed. Jacob comes along loses his son. They end up going into captivity in Egypt. And it's almost like the faith of Jacob. I mean, look at what God was doing. God literally took Joseph, his son, 
And God was fulfilling every promise He made to that family to make Him a great nation. How did He do it? He did it through the loss of His son. Joseph became, in the place they went into captivity, Joseph became uh, second only to the, the ruler of Egypt. And God, do you see, God has this giant plan. But do you see that Jacob, everything was uprooted. Everything that Jacob felt like was going to happen from the promises of his, of his grandfather Abraham, everything looked like it was destroyed. It looked like the plan was wrong. It looked like the plan had failed. It looked like God was going to do nothing. But God was at work in Joseph. And I want you to look at Joseph's life. Joseph had all these promises from God of what he was going to do in his life, but he gets falsely accused. He gets put into a prison for something he didn't do. It looked like everything was uprooted. And you, you know, it's really easy for us to read these scriptures and say to ourselves, well, we know the end of the story. Joseph becomes great, blah, blah, blah. They lived happily ever after. But see, these men didn't know that. All they know is that every dream was up, every dream was uprooted, every dream was shattered, everything looked wrong. Some of them, the Bible says in the book of faith, they died not receiving the promises that they had been promised. They were like a cover crop. All that life was buried inside of them. All that fruit was buried inside of them because God was going to bring life to everybody around them because of their life. Moses, I think of, as he sat and never got to enter the promised land, but like that crop was just, it was just tilled up inside of Moses and it was about to bear fruit. And you see it in Joseph's life. God was doing a work in his people, but he was doing it through Joseph. I mean, that the, the prayers of that family, and you see Moses comes along, and God does the same thing, uproots everything. He's on the backside of the desert, and everything looks like it's been shattered. Moses messed up. He's on the backside. Everything's barren. Everything's been destroyed. And Moses probably looked at that garden, and he said, Oh, man, I had dreams. How many think Moses had dreams? He knew that he was born for a specific reason, but on the backside of the desert, everything looked like it was gone. You say, well, he goes on and becomes Moses. I'll tell you what happened. You know, he should have known better. He was in a wilderness on the backside of the desert for 40 years. Shattered dreams is what I'm talking about. And I'm talking about having faith when everything is shattered and understanding God has bigger plans than you. That's all I'm saying. And so the one I want to look at today is John chapter 21. This is Jesus' disciples. And man, you want to talk about shattered dreams. Boy, this is a group that had some shattered dreams. Jesus came onto the scene, and boy, he looked like the Messiah. Healing the sick, demon-possessed, were being demons were being cast out. People were being raised from the dead. How many know that? Miracles all over the place. They were following him along, and they just knew that he was the Messiah. And I, and I, and I don't know if I can give a good picture, because we, we still have this problem of, oh, it all turns out well, he gets resurrected, they're the leaders of the church. See, they didn't know that. They weren't privy to that information. We are. All they know was, he was the Messiah, he's entering Jerusalem, they're about to receive their king and their Messiah, and God is going to restore the kingdom of David through Jesus Christ, and we're going to be a part of this. It's a big deal. Until he died. They were like, wow, that didn't last long. I mean, I want, I want you to get a feel for their disappointment. They were disappointed. They were so disappointed that they actually locked themselves in a room out of fear here in chapter 21. In fact, let me read it real quick here. 21 verse 1, it says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. 
It happened this way, Simon Peter Thomas, in fact, Simon Peter Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana, and son of Zeb- sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat that night, and they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find someone, or find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net because of the large number of fish. They're having flashbacks here. Okay, let me set up the scene before I go any further here. Jesus died, was crucified, was in the grave. All of their dreams and their hopes were shattered. They were depressed. They were upset. Um, Peter said, I won't deny you, Lord. All the other ones here will, but I won't. He said, before the evening, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me also. And he says, and all of you will. And he said, but, actually it's kind of funny in Matthew there, he says, when he's telling them they're going to deny him, he says, but when I am come back, I'm going to meet you guys over in Galilee, okay? Don't forget. How do you know that? He makes that, he makes that comment when he says they're going to deny him. He goes, but after, you know, I come back, he said, go on and meet me in Galilee, wait for me there. And this is actually the meeting here. And so the first meeting was, they're all upset, they're all scared, they're all worried, they're all afraid, and so they locked the door, and they closed themselves in a room, and Jesus goes through the wall. Literally goes through the wall and says, hey, I'm not dead after all. I'm resurrected. I died. I'm resurrected. I'm who I said I was. I did everything I told you I was going to do. And all of a sudden they're like, what? And then he talks to him, does lots of things. John says that he doesn't even write down lots of miracles that Jesus did when he appeared to them. And then he's gone again. (laughs) He's like, where did he go? And so now they're really confused. They have all this disappointment. They have all, they're, they're completely upset. They're completely down. Then all of a sudden he shows up and then disappears again. And then Thomas was like, oh man, I don't believe you guys. I've got to fill his uh, hands, I got to fill his feet, I got to see him for myself. So Jesus, about a week later, pops back in again, goes through the wall, they had it locked again, pops through there and says, hey, here I am, Thomas, you wanted to see me, you wanted to fill my scars, here I am, but, but you would have been better off if you just believed. And then he leaves again, <laughs> which I'm amazed that Jesus just pops in and pops out rather than just staying with him the whole time, you know. And so he's appearing to over 500 people in that period of time. And so then they remembered, well, if we want to see him again, we better go to Galilee because that's where he said he wanted to meet with us. And so I think they're really confused. I think they're really like, what is going on here? You know, we were really down. We were really depressed. We don't know what to do with ourselves now. He's gone. Who's our leader? Do you understand that they're really confused at this point? They don't know what's going on. They went through a real disappointment, and now they're starting to figure out, what do we do now? So they go to Galilee, and well, what do fishermen do when they go to Galilee? It's almost like Peter was going back to what he used to do. And so he says, hey, I'm going fishing. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going fishing. And so they're all like, yeah, yeah, let's go fishing. So they all go out fishing, and all through the night they're fishing, and these are professional fishermen. Okay, these aren't just regular fishermen. These are professional fishermen, and they can't catch a thing. And so... Somebody's walking up on the bank there, and they don't even know who it is. And he's saying, children, that's actually how it's um, written in the Greek, children, haven't you guys caught any fish? And he's kind of laughing because he knows that if you're a fisherman and you haven't caught anything, that's the last question you want to answer. Okay, so Jesus is like, have you guys caught anything? And they're like, yeah, we haven't caught a thing. And then he says, put your net on the other side of the boat. And they were like, wait a minute, there's only one guy that's ever told us to put our net on the other side of the boat. And they remembered back when they first uh, encountered Jesus. Do you remember? And they were out all night and they couldn't catch anything. And he said, hey, put your net over here. And it broke the nets. There were so much fish. And this one says... There were mega fish. 
a giant fish in the net. And so Jesus, in fact, I'm not going to read it because it's more exciting when I tell a story. So Jesus says, all right. He said, take all the fish, all the mega fish that you guys caught. Now, how much catching did they do? Throw the net right here. I'll send all the fish into your net and you just pick it up. And Jesus said, I've already got coals on the bank and I'm already cooking fish and I'm already cooking bread. It's already ready. But go on and bring all the fish you caught too and we'll put them all on there. He said, we'll put some of yours on there. And so Jesus is going to have breakfast on the beach with his disciples and his disciples have been completely um, discouraged, completely depressed, completely uh, disappointed. And now Jesus is trying to restore his disciples back to him and say, you know what? This was all for a reason. And he wants to understand why there's a reason here. And I think if we can understand what Jesus is trying to tell this group, because how many know this group had a lot of guilt? I mean, Peter abandoned him. And Peter's not the kind of personality that takes abandonment very well. I mean, know there's a lot of people that don't take failure very well, and Peter is definitely one of them. Peter is the one that takes great pride in what he does. He's the one that always stands up and says, well, they will, but I would never. You know, I would never. And in fact, even while they're walking here, Jesus takes him privately along the beach, and he's like, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Ask him three times, and Peter finally gets irritated. Yes, I do. Well, take care of my sheep. And John is walking close. And it says John's walking close and, and, and he's worried about John. Cause John was the one that kind of snitched on him earlier. And so he's like, what about John? He goes, don't worry about John. Just worry about yourself. Okay. And so Jesus has breakfast and he begins to restore them. And some of the things that I think Jesus does with his disciples is a very big help in us understanding how to shatter Proof our lie. Number one, Peter is being spiritually strengthened. It says in Luke 22, 31, Jesus tells Peter that he is about to be spiritually sifted by Satan. Satan came and asked specifically, can I sift Peter's faith and see if he survives? Do you know that? And it also says Jesus uh, was praying to the Father that he wouldn't be able to sift him. Now, how many know that we're very susceptible to our faith being damaged when we are in doubt, when we're disappointed, when things don't go the way we want them to go? And so Jesus is actually strengthening Peter's commitment. In fact, Luke twenty-two thirty-two it says, But I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, you will strengthen your brothers. Bob, you told me that scripture this morning in Corinthians where it says, God has comforted you so you can comfort your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. You say, man, why am I going through disappointment? Because you have something the rest of the body needs, but you have to pass the test. And I think one of the tests is, To have an empty net. Man, we don't like empty nets. We like to say, man, you know what? I'm a great fisherman. My net is so full. Did you see the catch I had? I'm a professional fisherman. You know that? How many have ever been like that? And it's like... You know what? We go through disappointments, we go through depression, we go through things in life, and we don't like feeling helpless. In fact, we would much rather be victorious all the way through because God did it. And man, I'm going to give so much glory to God with my success. Mm, Man, the script is already written. They're going to see my really nice car. They're going to see my really nice home. They're going to see my shapely body. They're going to see my wonderful job and my bank account and my giving to the poor. 
And they're going to see that my net is really full. And they will glorify God by what they see. Mm, The script is perfect. In fact, read the script. It's perfect. This is how my life's going to play out. I'm going to win at everything. I'm going to be successful at everything. And I've made a lot of people angry when I've told them this, but God cannot do what he wants to do with you winning all the time. God is a lot better when your net is empty and you're disillusioned and you're like, man, what is going on? I better run to God now. God is all I got. He's all you had. God was all you had in the beginning. Now he's all you got. Say, but I had money before. And I had a lot of worldly wisdom and I had a lot of influence and I had a lot of respect. Now I got no respect from people. Now I got no money. (laughs) All I got is God. (laughs) So the nets are empty. And... uh, Jesus comes and says, hey, there's mega fish, and it's only the width of the boat. I don't know how wide their boat was, but I bet it wasn't much more than 10 feet. So how close is my blessing in the midst of my despair? Just one obedient call to the other side of the boat. And the God of creation, the God of heaven, schooled mega fish... On the other side. Now, do you think that they didn't throw that net on that side all night long? It was like left, right, left, right, left, right, (laughs) all night long. Jesus comes and says, oh, yeah, they were all sitting right there on the right side. Too bad. (laughs) There they are. (laughs) And so, Jesus, um, we hate that our net was empty and our human effort did nothing. But Jesus delights in that. He delights in it. And say, man, that's not how the script's supposed to be written. I'm supposed to win. I'm supposed to glorify God through my victories. How many people have you ever seen that minister to you anything because of their success and their victory? And how many people have you looked at who've been through something and they could minister in your life? And I'm just telling you, if you don't have that cover crop plowed under, you're not going to help anybody. you got to go through something, church. you got to be through something. You're not going to ride on a cloud all the way to heaven and tell the little people below how wonderful God has been in your life. you got to go through something, and we will. Amen? Number two thing I think here. Obedience through disappointment. If you're a professional fisherman, the first time Jesus met them, they didn't know how much he knew about fishing. See, they were the professionals. They were the ones that knew all about fishing. And we're like them. Oh, yeah, I know how to win people to the Lord. I know how to fish. I know how to be a successful Christian. I know all about God and I know all about the Bible and I know everything about how to do everything. And that's your problem. You know everything. You've got the internet, right? And what God wants to do is He wants all of your human intellect to fail. You say, well, that's not how the script is written because I'm smarter than your average Christian. You're not ready. You need to be obedient to the Holy Spirit because it doesn't make intellectual sense and it never has. He says, it's not the wise. I chose the foolish of this world and those are the ones I'm going to do something through. I'm so happy because I'm one of those foolish people. They were amazed by the disciples because they were unlearned, uneducated men. And you say, Chad, if we'd only get a PhD in here to preach this church would take off. He wants people that are obedient to Him. He wants people that hear His voice. He wants people that gets rid of every opinion. He said, well, I'm not getting rid of all of them because Dr. Phil is 30% of my wisdom. 
And then I got this other program I watch, and then on the internet I type in anxiety and it tells me what to do, and and then the medication. I'm not going there. But God does want people, I mean, I'm not saying these things are bad, but they're not your priority. You say, well, if all that doesn't work, then I'll go to God. And I'm going to tell you something. Our intellect is spoiled by the world. Okay, our intellect, all of our books on our shelves are about success in life. Very little of our books talk about success for eternity. It's short-sighted success. It's success for your next 10 years, but it's not success for eternity. And what God wants to do is have people that are obedient. So what God has to do to make you an obedient person that listens to the Lord is He has to strip all of your intellect. And man, that's not how the script was written, though. Because my wisdom is godly wisdom. I have discernment that's beyond these people, and I just know, Chad. I know everything. And, well, you tell me, what would it take for God to strip you of your human intellect, your intelligence, your wisdom, your knowledge? You say, well, it's all God's. Not all of it. You'd be surprised how little of our wisdom, intellect, and intelligence it comes from God and how much of it is from a book, from a secular author, or from our TV shows. Or, and what God wants us to have is real Holy Spirit wisdom, guidance, understanding. And I don't know any other way to do it but to strip us of everything that's man. And the only way that I've been found to strip is to have failure. You know, like a business failure. Oh man, I thought I was smart. But it failed. Relationship failure. Man, I thought I was smart. But it failed. Now I need God. God, now I need you. Well, you needed him before. But you just didn't realize you needed him before. He was sixth on the list. And and you, the other five had to fail before he could be number one. How many know that? I'm telling truth here. We don't want to go through difficult things, but you just can't read your Bible and and understand it any different. These things are what causes us to have the qualities God needs to be fruitful and mature. Blessings are closer than you think. You say, man, I'm far away. Everything's failed. Now I just got to trust God because I got nothing left. I'm losing everything. And I'm just telling you, you're real close to blessing now. Because God says He's close to the brokenhearted and those who are broken are close to God. And the Bible also says, Psalms 35, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And when God blesses you, it's a real blessing. You know, I can remember so many failures in my life. I thought, man, this is the end. This is the end, man. I'm going down for the last time, and this is the end. And everywhere that that happened, God raised up something that I never expected to be there. Something great, something better, something more wonderful than my script was. Number five, do whatever it takes to be closer to Jesus. And this is very interesting. Peter, when Jesus first tells him to put the net in, when he first you know, experiences the fish multiplying, Peter puts the net in the water and gets scared. I remember this. He puts the net in the water and because he's a fisherman and he knows all about fishing and Jesus says put the net in and it breaks the nets or so much fish. It scares Peter because he knows something supernatural just happened. And at that point, Peter realizes he's the Messiah. How many know that? Peter has a, I guess you'd call it an epiphany at that point. He just says, hey, I know exactly who's here. And it scares him. And he backs away from him. Right? Then Peter, there's a storm on the water. Everybody else is kind of afraid. And Peter's saying, hey, I know who you are now. I want to be closer to you. And Peter actually says, bid me to come to you and I'll come. 
And he actually walks on the water for a while like Jesus. And you see, I love this personality of Peter that he wants to go be close to Jesus, that that he's active, and he goes after Jesus, you know. John, though, it's really interesting. John was pretty close to his side even during the crucifixion, stays very close to Jesus. And who's the first one that recognizes Jesus? Jesus is up on the bank walking, and he's like, hey, put the net in that right side. And then John looks at Peter and says, it's Jesus. He's the first one that recognizes him. In fact, John is kind of like a, um, he contemplates things, thinks about things, recognizes things, stays close to the Lord, but Peter's like, I'm going to get him. Do you see Peter's attitude here? It's like, I'm going after him. I, you know it's him and you recognize it's him. And now that I know it's him, Peter takes his shirt off, jumps in the water and swims up to the shore because he wants to be close to him. And you know, in the Bible, the Bible is full of eight times in the New Testament, the Bible says, make every effort to spiritually grow. And there's something about Peter in the moment of despair, the moment of disappointment, the moment of everything going wrong, I just, man, I see him. And it makes me think to myself, man, when I go through things and I go through this and I go through that and God just seems like he disappeared, I want to be the one that's running after him like Peter is. He was going after God in the middle of his disappointment, his disillusionment. He sees Jesus and he's like, man, I want him. And then the next one, everything God is going to accomplish is through grace. But he can only give grace to the broken. Think about that for a minute. Jesus fills up their net and says, bring your entire catch, let's have breakfast. And they didn't do a single thing. Jesus filled their net. Jesus said, come on to breakfast. Let's eat breakfast. Let's have time together. Let's spend time together. God did it all, but the only way God could do it is to do it through broken people. Why would you need grace if you're not broken? Why is grace amazing if you're perfect? Think about it. How do you give grace to somebody that's not broken? Do you even know? How does it happen? Because if you're not broken, you'll never look for grace. You'll never look for mercy. You'll never look for His love. You'll never look for Him. You'll never go after Him. In fact, listen to this. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Man, I want wisdom, but I don't want humility. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want it. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Okay, pride comes. Okay, I got that. When I'm proud, disgrace is coming. But when I'm humiliated, when I have humility, wisdom is coming. So Paul is praying that they would have wisdom and revelation. And my Bible here tells me that when I'm humiliated, wisdom is close behind. Say, man, but I hate being humiliated. I kind of like it. I kind of got good at it. It's okay to be humiliated. But we're Americans, Chad. That's in our constitution. We don't get humiliated. But how many know life's humiliating sometimes and that's where God can draw close to us? In those times, say, man, I don't know. I think God would be better off giving me all the money in the world and give me like big savings account and just give me all these things because you know how close I would be to God if he would do all that? And I'm not saying God doesn't bless you. You say, I'm not going back to that church again because he acts like God only gives me enough. I'm saying God will bless you, but there are certain inherent dangers too if we're not careful. 
Hosea 13.5 says, And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I'm sorry, that was uh, Daniel 4, verse 7. But then Hosea 13.6 says, When I fed them, they were satisfied. Well, praise the Lord. Read that one. That's a good one. Feed me, Lord. Make me satisfied, Lord. It says, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. And when they became proud, they forgot me. We don't like that one. So God does want to bless you. But boy, we got to be careful when we're blessed. Because sometimes we can forget God. and Sometimes we can become proud. And sometimes we can put our confidence in things that are not God. And, and, and I think that would be terrible of God to let us go a whole lifetime more and more and more proud, more and more and more forgetful. And I don't want to, I don't want to live my life that way. I want to know God. I want to be close to God. I want to be seeking God and going after God. And I want to be the one chasing after Him, you know. Listen to this, and I'm going to see if I can find this. I'm all messed up with my notes, but. I think this is a real important part of the message. So I'm going to look. I want you to listen to this. This is really important. How many have ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Famous Christian writer. He wrote a book that you guys are probably familiar with. It's called the Screwtape Letters. And real odd name. If you're not familiar with him, I'll explain it to you. He would write books that were kind of allegorical, and uh, they would explain different spiritual things by the stories he would tell. And in this particular book, it's actually a dialogue between demons. It's like spiritual warfare. And they're talking about what they're going to do, their strategies for defeating Christians. And so they give all kinds of information in this book, which is very interesting, of how they would think and how they would act and how they would behave because they're sending letters back and forth to each other. Now listen to this. And this isn't biblical, but it very much applies to what we're saying today. It says, this is one of the conversations uh, between the devil and his young apprentice, Wormwood. It is, he says, Wormwood, it is during the tough periods, much more than during the peak periods. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those that please God the most. Listen to this. He wants them to learn to walk. So he must therefore take away his hand. Are you listening to that? He's telling this apprentice of his that God will do this thing and God values the prayers during the dry periods more than he does during the peak periods. Did you know that? I think they're actually telling us something here. The game plan. And he wants them to learn to walk so he must therefore take away his hand. How many have ever done that? You're trying to teach your toddler how to walk? Well, man, he's never going to learn how to walk as long as my hand's there. So I'll keep the hand there, I'll keep the hand there, I'll keep the hand there, and then, oh, no, here it goes. And they go, right on the face. (laughs) All right? But they'll never learn how to walk if my hand's always there. They'll never learn how to ride the bike as long as I'm pushing it. And so any good father would pull the hand away, right? And he says, therefore he takes away his hand, and if only the will to walk is really there, he is even pleased when they stumble. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks around the universe from which every trace of God has vanished and asks why he has been forsaken 
but he still obeys. Do you hear what he said? We know we've lost him. Whenever every trace of God is not around, they can't see him, they can't feel him, they don't know where God's at. Every trace in the universe of God is around them, is disappeared. We know that we finally lost them when they feel like God has forsaken them, but they still say, I will obey you, Lord. So what is God trying to do with shattered dreams? He's trying to shatterproof you. He's trying to say, if they'll trust me and obey me through the most difficult times, the enemy just has no hold on you anymore. You're walking. You're walking in faith. Not by sight. You say, well, what if I fall apart every time something comes my way? You're walking by sight and not by faith. God is saying, I'm going to try this again. We do it every day. You walk a few steps with my hand, I let go. All right? And every day you fall down and refuse to walk. People said, we're going to do it again every day. I walk. Falls apart. <laughs> and here's what, here's what he's doing, church. He's trying to mature us. He's trying to teach us to walk. He's trying to teach us to trust. He's trying to teach us to obey. And the only way, if you have a better way to do it, let me know. Because I don't think there is a better way. Things have to fail. Things have to fall apart. Things have to not succeed. Because God is trying to strip us of all that so we can walk by faith. And like I told you, I've been through this thing for 30 years. And I've had things shattered. I've had the earth scorched. I've had everything around me fall apart. And my advice is still the same to my kids. When that happens, just leave it behind. Walk to the next thing and wonder to yourself, what great thing is God building there? I love in the Old Testament where you see the temples destroyed, the enemies have came in, they've advanced, they've destroyed Jerusalem. And I love like uh, Zechariah and Ezekiel. He says, hey, go out and measure the temple area. It's like, it's all destroyed. It's all ashes. There's nothing there. The enemy's uh, in control. But he's still saying, go take your tape measure. You ever seen a construction crew spike a job? You ever seen them cut the ribbon? And they're out there spiking the job. Keevan, you've seen it. They go out there and spike it. They put all the spikes in and say, here's where the house is going to be built. Everything is destroyed. Guess what God's doing? Oh my goodness, they destroyed it? I'm so disappointed like everybody else is. I'm so sad. It's destroyed. God is like... Nah, it wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. It wasn't functioning like I built it to do. I'm rebuilding. I'm rebuilding. He goes in and says, Ezekiel, go measure. And everybody's like, what's going on? Why is Ezekiel measuring the temple grounds? Because God is a new thing he wants to build there. Zechariah, why is he doing it? Because he wants to build something there. You say, what's God doing in my life when everything is shattered and scorched and broken? He's sending the Spirit of God out into your heart and He's saying, hey, go uh, measure. You say, but everything's destroyed, everything's shattered, everything's broken. No. God's preparing to build something new. And we've got to trust Him. Hallelujah. Stand on your feet. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, church. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, your spirit is in this house. Your spirit's in this word. Father, your spirit's in these lives. Take what's been shattered, Lord God, and build something wonderful, Lord. Mighty, Lord God, life-giving, Lord God. Plow under, Lord God, the old. and Make the new more fruitful and greater than ever, Lord God. More fertile. For your spirit, Lord God, do mighty things in this church, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. Hallelujah. This is a very simple message here, a very simple altar call.
If you've got disappointments, let it go. Walk on to the next thing. Say, you know what? That happened in my childhood. That happened at work. That happened with this friend. That happened in this marriage. That happened with this person I lost. And what God is saying, just lay that in that fertile soil of your heart and say, God, you did it for a reason. I don't understand it. I may never understand it, but I will always trust you. I will always obey. I'll never doubt you. I'm not going to be God. I'm not going to write the script. I'm not going to be the one to tell God how to be God. I'm going to trust you through everything. I'll give you a name you might want to remember, and his name is Job. And he trusted God. Trusted God when everything could have went wrong. The enemy tried to sift him. The enemy tried to sift Peter. The enemy tried to sift sift the faithful of God. And the only thing that protects you from the enemy sifting is, I'm going to trust him no matter how disappointed I am. I'm going to praise him even when I'm disappointed. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm going to preach myself very happy today. Hallelujah. Amen. You can do the same thing. Get up at that altar area and just give it all to the Lord. All the bitterness, all the anger, all the misunderstanding, all the disappointment, and just say, God, it's yours. I give it up today. Hallelujah. If you need prayer, we're up here. Hallelujah. Isn't the Lord good? Hallelujah. That song, boy, I love when the Spirit of God leads a service, you know. Hallelujah. I want you to, when we close today, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about all the disappointment that Jesus' disciples felt in their heart. But in the midst of all the disappointment, I want you to visualize who's standing up on the shore. Because in our disappointment, in our disillusionment, in our despair, how many know we need to see that picture? I want to read, I want to close with these lyrics to this song. It's called, Jesus Will Still Be There. It says, Things change, plans fail. You look for love on a grander scale. Storms rise, hopes fade. You place your bets on another day. When the going gets tough, when the ride's too rough, when you're not sh- when you're just not sure enough, Jesus will still be there. His love will never change surely as the steady rain. Jesus will still be there. No one else is true. He'll still be loving you when it looks like you've lost it all and you haven't got a prayer. Jesus will still be there. Time flies, hearts turn, a little bit wiser from lessons learned, but sometimes weakness wins and you lose your foothold once again. When the going gets rough, when the ride's too tough, when you're just not, sh- or you're just not sure enough, When it looks like you've lost it all and you haven't got a prayer, Jesus will still be there. How it must have felt for Peter to see him standing there. Hallelujah. Think about that today, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for you and your life the wisdom and the understanding you give us through the most difficult circumstances. Bless your people, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus.